Okay, so today I'm really happy to welcome on the Metaverse Show co-founder of D-Commerce, that is D-E, Commerce, Roy Bernheim. Welcome, Roy. So we describe uh, D-Commerce in general terms as your engine to host, engage, and reward your community in your own space. Now, of course, that leaves out a lot of the Web3 context deliberately um, because you're speaking primarily to, to Web2 brands. So in the context of Web3 and, of course, you know what, why you're on this show, what you're talking about is being able to bring Web2 brands into Web3, enabling them to on-ramp existing customers without having to leave these kind of Web2 experiences and interfaces in, in a couple of clicks, so really seamlessly. And why uh, that's important, to, to Web2 brands is to allow them to own and engage their community directly rather than kind of renting them temporarily from, from these kind of existing Web2 platforms. And I guess the essence of that, and we'll get into it a little bit later, is that as, as a consequence of not owning audiences, they're not really able to fully understand them, um, engage with them, and, and kind of realize that their full potential. D-commerce uh, is... Also, a portfolio company of outliers. You're actually uh, in a program that we run, not the e-commerce program, actually, that we, we just launched with, with Walmart and we're still recruiting for, but actually the Farfetch uh, program, Dream Assembly program. Of course, whilst they are, on the one hand, a fashion and luxury company, they are also an e-commerce company. Um, they are a, a Web2 brand. They work with a lot of number of Web2 brands. And so that's why you came into that program. However, people who are fans of the show will know we've been talking about the concept of e-commerce for, for a very long time, all the way back to our investment in Boson Protocol. And so you're a really nice continuation of that, albeit uh, a little bit more kind of at the uh, UX uh, end of it, and I guess kind of CRM. So maybe let's get to to know you a little bit better. You are a co-founder. Uh, co-founder is Alan, but let, let's learn a little bit more about uh, you, Roy, before we go into what is e-commerce and uh, I guess the problem you're trying to solve. Thanks for the introduction. And so um, my background is I'm Swiss originally, and so is Alan. Whenever I talk about us or we, it'll be typically Alan and myself. Um, personal background is I studied in London, uh, did economics at UCL and LSE here, then went into the venture space. So uh, on the other side, I uh, helped startups grow and develop uh, on, as an yeah, advisor and, ex- and accelerator, and then joined the business side. So I worked for a very big multinational company, 35,000 people company, building brands um, all across the world. The main focus for me at the time was in Asia, I then relocated to uh, Bangkok, Thailand, was there for four years, where I worked for the COO on all sorts of projects. And of course, that was very much the early days of e-commerce back then, and worked on strategic projects for the company to start up the e-commerce ecosystem, and then um, built up the own brands division for the company. We Then when I left, we had 12 brands on the portfolio from countries uh, that we launched in China, in Australia, all the way to Myanmar. As part of that, I was then, of course, heavily engaged in e-commerce. And that was in Myanmar, uh, as a fact, was my first touch point with Web3 in 2016. Very cool. Well, so it's, it's in a way kind of in reverse, you know, normally kind of founders go on to be 
to be to be VCs. What took you in the other direction? What kind of made you want to become an operator? Usually, uh, uh, as, as a VC, you'd see how awful being a founder is, and and and, and never never want to be one ever again, right? <laughs> so, uh, what what uh, what tricked you into becoming a founder? Yes, yeah, so I. I mean, at the time, I loved seeing all the different uh, companies that people were starting. That's what fascinated me uh, about the space in general. And having then had my hands-on experiences, especially in, in Asia, I then really wanted to get building. And that's what I was really excited about. Then met Alan uh, through a mutual friend of ours. And Alan is, a, is an incredible um, operator, executioner. So, yeah that got me onto the, the founder side. I mean, I guess from the sounds of it, you, you were kind of an entrepreneur anyway within that large organization, right? You were kind of launch, launching launching brands. So albeit within a relative safety of a, a large organization, but of course that comes with its own constraints and limitations as well. So I guess you've kind of gradually progressed into a more classic startup world. It's interesting your experience out in Asia, and in particular, that's how you, you had exposure to Web3, what's your perspective on that kind of ecosystem, the Web3 ecosystem out in Asia, Southeast Asia? How has it evolved and, and matured? And is that a key region for e-commerce still? Or? Back then, so that was 2016, it was very nascent. Um, I heard about this, well, now it's called the ReFi project. Basically, they um, financed mangrove plantation um, through a... A token in essence um back then there was not really words for it so we were trying to understand what this was and how it worked so that was extremely exciting and interesting and since then i think yeah i think in particular thailand has become um, a bit of a hub in the area there is i mean back then already there were some exchanges there was possibilities to yeah do first um, smaller investments and experiments in in the space already and I think that's evolved quite a bit since. And um, so since I left the region in 2017, I moved to Switzerland, um, where I'm originally from. And then with Alan, we then decided to first go into e-commerce first in 2017 to found and scale our own direct-to-consumer menswear brand, which we went from zero to about 300,000 customers now. Oh, wow with that experience. We always wanted to find a way to marry the two worlds. And um, and then only about a year and a half ago, with the evolution of new uh, new technologies, new use cases within the Web3 space, we then found a really nice way to bring the two together. You know, doing that, creating um, your own fashion brand, retail brand, you were your own customer in the context of e-commerce. So a lot of the pains learnings that that you had as a small to medium you know scale brand uh, entirely dependent upon these platforms to reach your customers of course on the one hand very powerful platforms you know billion dollar companies uh, with just a couple of people are made you know fairly regularly uh, just by using something like instagram or maybe facebook less so now tiktok or, or whatever it is so what's wrong because you know people seem to be making loads of money w- with relatively small teams um, they seem to be able to reach these global audiences without having to build complex websites or their own, even their own e-commerce solutions now with things like Shopify integrations, right? So isn't that working? You know, what, what's, what's wrong with that setup from a, from a brand perspective? 
what was special about our, or still is, still exists about our D2C brand is that it's community-led because neither Alan nor I we have a fashion background. We started asking people first, then newsletter subscribers what they wanted, what they needed. And we got over 40% response rates on those questions, which then led us to make it uh, the first community-led brands to have them influence and basically co-create products together. So that's how we started. As we were doing that, we were starting producing better content, also better processes, etc. But we saw our engagement decrease. So first we thought, you know, something's wrong with what we're doing. You know, is it us? And then we took a step back and started understanding a bit more of the entire industry that actually the entire um, industry, especially e-commerce, direct-to-consumer is broken. Meaning that about maybe, you know, 10 years ago, eight years ago, you could very much scale and, and build your brand direct to consumer, what you mentioned. However, what has happened over the past few years is that what is true, you can sell direct to consumer. So purchasing happens directly through your own website, like through enabled by Shopify, for example, or, or Salesforce, etc. But the communication, and especially the community around it, has not gone direct to consumer. So what has, in essence, what has happened is that the new gatekeepers have become these social media platforms where they decide who gets to see what message. So if, if you have a brand and you started building your audience maybe 10 years ago on social media platforms, there was this implicit understanding that you know, once you've reached your, you have your audience, you have your follower, they will always see your message. You know, then you own them. You can communicate with them. However, what has happened really is that that reach has been completely cut in numbers. So Facebook, but it's the same for other social media platforms, but we know the numbers specifically for Facebook. You have a reach of 2% to your own audience, meaning that from 100,000 people that say, I love what you're doing, Jamie. I want to see everything that you post. From 100,000 people, 98,000 of them will never see a post in their feed at all. So unless you maintain ad spend, you're not prioritized even to your own follow base. So um, so effectively, even if you invest millions in, in building an audience, you, you think you've secured this audience, you think they're seeing all of your content actually unless you're maintaining that same level of spend, you will be um, subordinated to whoever is prepared to pay that the highest dollar to reach your audience, presumably to, to actively target your audience as well, right? Exactly. And, and this is not because the platforms are evil, but it's because it's very competitive. Everyone on the platforms is competing for the same eyeballs and there's only so much real estate, really. So, so that's uh, what happens there. And secondly, you also don't really know who these people are that follow you on the social media platforms. You know the numbers, you know roughly the demographics on a very, very high level, but you cannot understand at the moment, at least, you know, who are the sub-segments? Who are these people really? How do they relate to my business? It's very disconnected to, let's say, you're a brand and you sell products to your purchasing data and trying to understand who your community is and what they really care for and what their interests are and sub-tribes within those 
it's an impossible thing to do right now. So I, th- I think that is like a very clear problem statement, right? So it'd be good to understand how you solve that problem, especially when brands are still interfacing through those same Web2 environments. That's that's part of the, the sell, right? Is that you can continue to be in these spaces. You, you, you don't necessarily have to try to migrate all your users into a new a new web3 platform or anything like that you can stay there you can you can continue to be producing content in the same channels but somehow you allow them to have deeper engagement deeper data analytics and additional forms of uh, interaction i guess yeah so what we enable brands to do with a um, one click um onboard solution is that they can empower their own web shop or a landing page, for example, for a limited edition release or an NFT drop or something, an exciting event on a landing page where they can then socialize, humanize and gamify their own websites. So for all this traffic that already comes to the website, what you want to allow is for people to actually engage with the brand but also with other people that love that brand so we've seen traditionally you'd have people who are excited about let's say watches or certain sports that talk about it um on a social media platform but actually what they'd want to do to talk about the specific brand and they meet other people through that brand on a social media platform but this is only true in the in the virtual world and in, in digital spaces if you think about it in offline terms, is what it what it really looks like is you have a shop as a brand, so you have you know you show your products, but if you have customers in your store that want to talk to other customers about the product and how they've used it on the on a hike or how they were how they went sailing with it or something like that, at the moment you need to say, please, can you not have this conversation here in our store? Can you go down the street, go to a pub? And discuss it there. And whenever you feel ready to come back and purchase something, you know, just come back up the street and buy something here. What our tool does is we enable people to have the social space, the conversations in the store. So there is a, a new interface. There is a kind of app platform, um, which is which is branded, customizable. It is effectively a social environment, a form of kind of social commerce, kind of seamlessly connected to these Web2 platforms where your kind of existing audiences and followers are, right? Exactly. So we've got integrations with um, Shopify. Um, We're partnering with Salesforce. So those kind of seamless integration with the existing ecosystem that brands are built on. In addition to that, enables them to really understand and enrich the understanding of their community, of their customers, of fans. And and that's the last problem that we didn't touch on yet with what's impossible to do right now in in the two spaces is to reward people for their contributions. So with our D2C brand, with Tivo, we had had people spend you know, all out of time, a lot of thought and, and, and feedback coming into how they wanted us to develop products, to even generate a content for us. And the only way for us to thank them for it was either on social media to, to, to like or to say thank you or to give them some kind of discount in a shop. To us, how we think about e-commerce is that we really see it as the future of work where we enable brands to 
either reward more in a gamified way, so it could be badges, um, NFTs, those kind of things, but then really also in a way to reward them for work, you know, to have customers, core team members, photographers, et cetera, et cetera, having those lines blurred over time. So you'd be like, okay, you might be a customer, but you happen to also be a photographer with great photography skills. Why don't you contribute to the brand's content and get rewarded for it as you do? Yes, that's actually a really interesting take on e-commerce because I think you know most people, myself included, when when we talk about e-commerce, we're primarily talking about you know decentralizing that digital supply chain, unbundling an e-commerce platform, unbundling an Amazon or whatever from, you know, all the way from user acquisition to, to final mile. But actually what you're talking about is something much further than that, which is not just decentralizing the e-commerce stack, but actually flipping the concept of a brand um, on its head or inverting the organization, making it more kind of porous, more of an open organization, right? Which I know for many brands has, has been the, the holy grail, actually what brought me into Web3 near a decade, well, uh, probably a decade ago now, um, was looking at open innovation. Um, so how peer-to-peer technologies, social media yeah. being, you know, the, um, the first kind of mainstream one, really, even though it turned out to be mediated peer-to-peer, was engaging customers in product development, engaging them in marketing, you know, not just broadcasting to them, but kind of have, having this kind of conversation. So fe- effectively, you're realizing that fuller vision, right? 100%. That's how we built our own D2C brand, really involving the customer fans in the creation. And by doing so, and that's why we've then decided to white label our software solution is that we've doubled the revenue, we've tripled the repeat purchase rates. So we've um, almost doubled lifetime value of the customers because all of a sudden they're emotionally super engaged. They're part of shaping the brands, the products, everything around the commerce. And secondly, we can engage with them directly. So we have a direct communication channel and we find direct and more intricate ways to communicate with them, 100%. And, and that's why, so based on those numbers, and, and we did also a, an independent study with um, data scientists who looked at the data behind it. And that really cemented our belief in that the successful brands, or even bigger, the successful organizations of the future are the ones that are really community-led and embrace their community in everything that they shape. Yeah, and I think that is, you know, most people that are engaged native to Web3 expect that. It's a requirement, right, that you can, you are actively involved, you have direct ownership through NFTs, through governance tokens, it's participatory and it's networked rather than this thing just spitting out products at you or spitting out communication at you. So um, it's really kind of extending those principles to to, to every brand, really, uh, I guess, uh, large or small. And, and given your integration to things like Shopify and presumably Shop, that, that means you can go all the way to this long tail of, of retailer as well. You mentioned some kind of metrics there, um, and I kind of saw 
presentation you did yesterday actually to a bunch of um, bunch of investors and there were some really impressive stats so could you, could you maybe talk through uh, some of the different brands that you're engaging with uh, some kind of more more metrics to understand uh, you know how this measurably in, improves their business and, and, and bottom line what we measure is right now is, is profitable revenue and how we break it down is in terms of how much more revenue is generated with that same audience versus if they didn't they hadn't implemented e-commerce and also in our admin panel um, we're building in the so the insights feature where you can on a daily basis understand the attribution to how much more revenue and bottom line basically are you generating through e-commerce through involving your community directly um, in terms of the numbers so what we've seen is for me at least the most like, interesting number is the tripling of repeat purchase so what we've seen is that people that have so customers that have started engaging directly with the brands somehow they've created an account they've come in and engaged in the community they're three times more likely than before to purchase again and and there's two things so one element is of course the emotional connection but secondly it's the do you remember how we spoke about the two percent yes. earlier so earlier you could you could only reach two percent of your own audience via social media platforms now for every person that comes onto your community you have a hundred percent reach right so you could send them a push notification through our tech you can now send them an email you can now also um, drop in something in their wallet if you wanted to so you go you get a 50x on your reach straight off the bat so those two elements um combined are just extremely powerful for for retention and lifetime value generation um there is other aspects like seo so because once you have the plugins with e-commerce on your site people start to engage with your page what we've seen is that we've uh, more than doubled the, la the the average time spent on site for for brands and of course then google for example starts picking up on that they understand oh somehow this brand versus all its competitors is seeing much more engagement and much more time spent on the site that must be interesting so your seo starts to improve significantly because of that automatically so there is all sorts of very tangible um, bottom line uh, benefits of it we're now working on a, a more of a sustainability um, proof case. And what we mean by sustainability, so I know the numbers in the apparel space, for example, for the US, in the US, over 50% of clothes never get sold and they get thrown away. So everybody talks about sustainable fabrics and, and, and raw materials and all that. And that's absolutely important and it's great. I think that the much bigger lever that we have is actually that products get produced that should never have been produced in the first place. 50% should have not been produced, which is a staggering number. Now, 
if you can involve your community and just even ask them a couple of questions before you even go into production in your own community space, you can now save a lot of waste. So on the sustainability side, there's a huge impact. But even if you don't care about sustainability, which I don't know who wouldn't, but let's say you would, you don't care about it. Just financially, it makes so much more sense to not having to produce stuff that you'll have to throw away afterwards. Yeah, and I think, look, it, it brings back that the benefit of you know the original crowdfunding where people would prove they want the product before you, you make it. And it would, there'd be a certain threshold of demand before you'd even before you'd even produce the product. I'm, I'm nervous to say it just because it's probably grossly out of date, but we actually published a book called 10 Principles of Open Business and there was, crowdfunding was, was one of these. It was a precursor to a lot of my thinking around um, Web3. It's what naturally led me in here. And a lot of the things that you're talking about are building upon you know these kind of established principles of a decade, two decades maybe now of, of, of kind of thinking around crowdfunding and, and open business principles. So you mentioned this this kind of SEO hack as a byproduct of, of, of what you're doing, which is obviously really powerful. To what extent is there a reliance on these Web2 platforms and their APIs? You know, we know historically of deplatforming, you know, people think of deplatforming in the context of users, but, you know, SME founders, people building applications that require API access to something like Facebook, you know, notoriously they'd become successful and then their API would be revoked. To what extent is there that mm -hmm. risk for you guys and, and how do you kind of mitigate or manage it? Uh, there is zero risk on that. So we don't rely on any API from any social media platform or anything the like. We're not linked to their um, social media platforms. We can and we have actually a growth engine built into it which makes it automated and, and much easier for brands to on-ramp their own communities through on-ramping from social media. So I think that's where um, what you mentioned with that. So that's an, an additional tool that we have and that we can use. But I'd say for, the, for our tool set, there is no risk to it. What we're much more focused on and where we have very close um, collaborations with is the API on the other side. So APIs with companies like Salesforce, like Shopify, where we work really closely to make sure that we can actually give our clients, in essence, a 360 view on, on their audience. Interesting. So, so do you think, let, let's zoom out now, long-term, what happens here? Do we do users gradually get migrated out of Web two? Audiences, followers get migrated out of Web two in, into Web three environments. To what extent are they on chain? Because obviously, if they're on chain, they're public. So you know, presumably, competitors can kind of see all the data, all the transaction data. They can they can just hack hack your audience bases, or, or do we end up with like a Web two point five kind of Web two and Web three coexist? Because it sounds very disruptive to the ad model of Web two, right? Because they generate billions by deliberately creating these very compete. The fact that you're constantly competing over your audience. Um, if that's no longer the case, that fundamentally undermines that model. So does Web2 even exist anymore? You know, I think we're now in a similar um, moment in time compared to maybe around 2010 when social media started coming up. 
similar types of conversations were had were like, okay, is it going to replace everything that's existing or is it going to take off at all? So these kind of conversations. And I remember back then I was already working um, with, with brands on social media and, and discussing with their social media strategy, 2010. And I remember very, very clearly talking to some you know, luxury brands and they were telling me, well, we'll never be on social media. Yes. This is not on brand. We can't control what people post. Why would we ever do this? <laughs> and fast forward to today, and it's unimaginable to, to not be there. And I think right now we're having similar conversations. So some, some of them, some of the brands um, we've onboarded and, and founders also we've been talking to said, actually, that's exactly what we've been looking for. We were thinking about building it or not and so on. And then we've talked to the other extreme and they're like, well, you know, we have what it is right now. Why would we move and, and build our own? So it's, it's a very similar point in time. And I think the answer um, to, to your question, uh, as we see it, is not that it's going to replace social media. I think there's a big case for having marketplaces and, and, and platforms like that also to generate awareness, to get people to get to know a brand first, for example. But then our point is more after you've built a love for a brand, for a community, then it's time to, to take it home, to have your intimate space where you can have your one-on-one -on -one interactions and build the direct relationship with your audience. So I think it's going to take market share. I think it's a good amount of market share from that, but it's not going to replace social media completely. That's not our, our message. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's definitely a lot of analogies there. Well, I, when I was coming up in the digital industry, which is sadly more than 2010, it was probably 23 years ago now, when social media was coming through, I was, I think, the first person to bring Facebook and Twitter into WPP, big comms group at the time. Um, and then went on to create a social media agency. And I was having all of these conversations. With, and, and I remember luxury was definitely the one in the most denial because um, it fundamentally was just at odds with the very concept of luxury, accessibility and, and, and um, you know, mystery. And they many of them weren't even wanting to, to do direct consumer e-commerce, let, let alone social media at the time. Which of course is why Farfetch exists um, now and has become the monster that it's become. Yeah. And so I think a really good partner. You speak to Jose, the founder of that. He's ridden that whole journey, and it's interesting. He's a kind of next generation founder working directly with Jose. I believe you got to meet him as well on on, on the program. So I'm sure that was a fascinating experience for you, kickstarting effectively the next paradigm shift for brands. Yeah, a hundred percent. And this is really where we're at and, and we're and i think denial is the right word so we're really working with and wanting to work with more um executives or, or founders who see that new paradigm shift and are already there and of course there are people that will want to kind of push down the can down the line but then this this is happening i mean we've seen it in the space there are some brands for example, in Nike, they see themselves as a tech company, I think, more than anything. So they've built Dasswoosh, which is a good example of their own community space, Web3 enabled. And we come in as for everybody that doesn't want to build 
everything from scratch. Yeah, and you can see Adidas doing it now. You know, we've got good friends over there. A lot of big brands have have, have come to the, the same realization. Obviously, Farfetch is looking at loyalty, and they're looking at more community-driven innovation as well across their various brands, not just their e-commerce platform. So there's definitely momentum there. But you know, as with all these things, there are early adopters, and and there are those that kind of come in come in later into the cycle. Uh, well, look, it's been uh, fascinating talking to you. I think Roy, you've given um you've expanded uh certainly my, my thinking around e-commerce and very timely to get you on the show as i said we've just launched uh recruitment for applications to uh, specifically a e-commerce uh, acceleration program with uh, with walmart store number eight which is their innovation incubation arm so if you are a web3 startup web 2.5 startup um inspired by what roy's been talking about and thinking about how you want to engage the world of retail and e-commerce, definitely apply at that, outlierventures.io slash Basecamp. But Roy, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Really excited to watch your continued momentum as you, as you graduate the program and go out into the wild. Just listening to the stats, the metrics, um, feels like a no-brainer. So really, really looking forward to seeing kind of the, the level of disruption that you can bring to that space. Amazing. Thanks, Amy. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3. 